Turning in the Word of God now to the book of Proverbs. Proverbs, the 22nd chapter. And we'll read only verse 6. Proverbs chapter 22 and the verse 6. Train up a child in the way he should go. And when he is old, he will not depart from it. For those that have been coming over the past number of months at least, you will know that we have been on the first Lord's Day morning of each month from June. We have been taking the topic of the Sunday school. Perhaps a lot more technical and historical, and certainly today's will be historical than usual, but a very vital topic, we believe. And today is the history of Sunday schools. So we'll bow before the Lord, ask for His help and His wisdom as we deal with the topic on hand here today. Our Heavenly Father, again, we look to Thee for Thy blessing and for Thy help. If we're not already convinced, we pray that Thou will convince us today of the need to not only maintain, but to expand our work in the Sunday school. What a vital work it is. And how each member in the congregation can undoubtedly play a part. Yes, we cannot all be Sunday school teachers or Sunday school superintendents or those that have the energy and the time to knock doors and do all kinds of follow-up. But we can all pray and we can plead before thy throne. And when we see what is happening in schools, when we see the hand of the state trying to further reach into the ranks of the church of Jesus Christ, when we see the kind of propaganda that is going about through all of the news media today, then we sometimes ask ourselves, humanly speaking, what chance, what chance has these children? But Lord, we thank Thee that the answer is Thy Word, is instruction in the ways of the Lord. And we pray that we shall do what Proverbs, in all of its wisdom, has for that long time advised us, train up a child in the way he should go. And when he is old, he will not depart from it. May we all have a part to play in that kind of beneficial training for time, but not only for time, for eternity. We pray in Jesus' name and to thine eternal glory alone. Amen. In a previous message on the Sunday school, I brought forward a number of objections that commonly people specify as to why you don't need to have a Sunday school in this day. 
And as already referenced today, some churches, for a variety of reasons, no longer has a Sunday school. People have argued, well, there's no scriptural warrant for Sunday schools. They're a human innovation. God has never given a hint of a green light of approval for them. They will tell you as well that they never featured in any work of reformation or of revival. Check back through the history of the church. You'll never find a Sunday school being prominent here. They will say as well that when apostasy is coming in like a big tide, well, the Sunday school has never been able to check that. They'll also tell you Sunday schools are a thing of the past, no longer of impact, no longer effective. And I guess when you look around you today, you will see maybe an advert somewhere, messy church, and other kinds of things that people deem to be innovative and maybe attractive and perhaps relevant to the times in which we live, but not many adverts for Sunday schools. And so they're buying into this notion they are no longer effective. Others come along and they dismiss the necessity, the value of the Sunday school, and they will say, you know, it's just a modern phenomenon. It's a recent intrusion into the field of religion. It's a bit of a gimmick in itself. You know, it's a practice that is neither warrant in the Bible, you'll not find it there, and it doesn't have any precedent in the greater part of church history. And it's that very issue that I'm going to be tackling today. Is the Sunday school part and parcel of church history, or is it really a recent innovation, as people say? First of all, what we're coming to is the revelation behind the teaching of the young. And when I say the revelation, I'm talking about God's revelation, the Bible, the Word of Truth. Does the Bible have anything to say about the teaching of the young? We begin, well, we could begin today with our text in John 21 and verse 15, where our Lord said to Peter, feed my lambs. And that certainly is very relevant to the topic at hand. But I begin further back than that, into the Old Testament and with Jewish practice. It is a fact. God commanded His people to provide in the earliest days an education for the children, a religious education. And so we have in the words that we have quoted before we came to the topic today, Proverbs 22 and verse 6, train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. There was a Jewish historian called Josephus, and he reminds the Jews in his book, The Antiquities, he says, let the children also learn the laws as the first thing that they are taught, which will be the best thing they can be taught and will be the cause of their future felicity. Now, given the fact there was an onus here upon the Jewish communities to teach their children, the Jews back then took great steps to ensure that in every town and in every city, a person was appointed for this purpose of overseeing the education, spiritual education of children. Dr. John Lightfoot notes that in every city and in every town, there was a school where children were taught to read the law, and if there were any town where there was not such a school, the men of that place stood excommunicate until one was erected. And so there was a big emphasis here on the necessity, we could call these synagogue schools. 
In the New Testament, we read, of course, of Nicodemus, who was a master, meaning a teacher of Israel. John 3 and verse 10, we have Gamaliel as well. He had his own school, apparently, in Jerusalem. He was an eminent Pharisee. And Paul, a Jewish boy, Saul of Tarsus back then, was taught both the law of Moses and the traditions of the elders in this school that was run by Gamaliel, Acts 22 and the verse 3. So, in answer to the question, is there anything in the Bible itself that is telling us you need to teach religious education to the children? Of course there is. In both Testaments, it is very evident. That's the first thing today, the revelation behind the teaching of the young. I don't think I've had a shorter first point in my history, but Well, all things are subject to change, and change has been brought about today. The revelation behind the teaching of the young. Secondly, the review of the teaching of the young. If first point was short, this one will not be, because we're taking a huge span of history right now. When the Christian church began, it appointed teachers as well who were responsible for the instruction of the young, and we have references to catechizing throughout the New Testament. Now, they seem to have gone for simple forms back then. Didn't give them the big chunks of hard and heavy-hitting religious education, but they tailored what they were teaching to those who were being taught. So, they used simple forms, outlines of the faith. For example, you'll read in Romans 6 and 17, that form of doctrine which was delivered you. In 2 Timothy 1 and 13, the form of sound words. In Hebrews 5 and verse 12, what they're doing is they are teaching the first principles of the oracles of God. Joseph Bingham tells us that there were such catechetic schools adjoining the church in many places. And he actually goes and he quotes a Roman emperor, Leo by name, and Leo was saying they were a sort of building belonging to the church. And surely we have the concept there of a Sunday school during the Dark Ages. That period, late 5th century to round about at least 1,000 or beyond, in fact right up to the 1500s, I guess, the Church of Rome was keeping the minds of adults and children in ignorance as to what the truth of God really was. And they bound them up in superstition, they bound them up in tradition, they bound them up in this ecclesiastical hierarchy headed by the Pope. And if you want to know anything, you'll be taught by the church, not directly by the Word. But as Professor Edie remarks, no sooner was the Reformed religion established than provision was made for the instruction of all persons, especially children, in the fundamental doctrines of religion. So that brings us, that comment, to the Protestant Reformation in the 16th century. And in that Reformation, we're talking about largely three branches. One branch over in Germany, 
the Lutheran Reformation, that's under Martin Luther, Philip Melanchthon, etc. Then we have another branch, the Zwinglian or the Calvinistic Reformation, Switzerland, France, Holland, Scotland, men like Ulrich Zwingli, John Calvin, John Knox, famous figures. And then we have a third branch in the Reformation in Europe that was in England under Thomas Cranmer, Nicholas Ridley, Hugh Latimer, and the like. But the point is this, wherever Protestantism took hold right over Europe, a concern came with it for the children. And that concern resulted in a determined effort to reach those children with the Word of God. Take first of all that Lutheran Reformation in Germany. One of Martin Luther's greatest concerns was the true and the proper education of children. As early as 1520, in a manifesto delivered to the Christian nobility of the German nation, the politicians of his day, Luther urged the importance of getting the gospel to the children. Oh, he exclaimed, how badly we treat that unhappy band of young people entrusted to us for guidance and education. We can hardly justify ourselves for not having set the Word of God before their eyes. Follows that up a few years later, 1524, with a call to the magistrates in the German towns to invite them to set up Christian schools. And he laments the absence of any real desire to educate the young, and he declares, Oh, the devil much prefers blockheads and drones. And I'm sure drones had an entirely different meaning uh, back then than what it normally does now when given the war in Ukraine and all of that. But the point he's making is this. The devil wants to keep people in ignorance. He doesn't want them to get to know the truth. He doesn't want them to be able to open Holy Scripture, read it, and learn here. He prefers to work on blockheads. Luther's own short or little catechism appeared in 1529. That was again designed for children to establish them in the Reformed faith, and it was a very useful teaching tool to ministers who might use it. Luther wrote, with the young, always keep to one form and teach them word for word so that the young may repeat and learn them by heart. And he was bringing in his own experience here. He said, I'm a doctor and teacher, but I am like a child that is taught the catechism, and I read and recite word by word in the morning the Ten Commandments, the articles of the Creed, and the Lord's Prayer. And he said, I cheerfully remain a child and pupil of the catechism. It's the opinion of the historian Dr. Philip Schaff, this Little catechism, which is Luther's best, bears the stamp of his religious genius. And is, he said, next to his translation of the Bible, his most useful and enduring work, by which he continues a living teacher in catechetical classes and Sunday schools as far as the Lutheran confession extends. Luther got onto the back of ministers in his day. And he said, you men have a duty to ensure 
that children are taught the gospel. He wrote to the elector, John of Saxony, the principal politician in his area, on the 20th of May, 1530, and he acknowledged gratefully that the merciful God is making his word powerful and fruitful, for surely, he writes, your grace's land has more excellent pastors and preachers than any other land in the whole world. But what he wanted those pastors and preachers to do was target the tender youth, both boys and girls, so that they are so well instructed in the catechism and the scriptures. Luther said, I am deeply moved when I see that young boys and girls can pray, believe, and speak more of God and Christ than they ever could have before. And I trust today, if we're involved in children's work, that we'll be able to say, as Luther did back in the 16th century, I am deeply moved by this. This doesn't just have a little bit of surface influence on my heart. It doesn't have a little bit of casual passing interest in the way that I interact as I go through life. It is a thing that deeply moves me. Can that be said of you? Luther realized, however, most pastors and preachers may not be able to reach many of the people. They needed help. And so he encouraged not only the pastors and the preachers, but ordinary church members to take up this work to teach the young. And he said, I know that next to preaching, this is the best, surest, the most useful vocation, and I am not sure which of the two is better. For it is hard to reform old sinners with whom the preacher has to do, while the young tree can be made to bend without breaking. So, in Martin Luther, you have a real enthusiast for child evangelism. One historian said of Luther, he desired to give all German children the means of receiving the same evangelical education which he had received. Train them for service. Train them for eternity. Lead them to Christ. That was his motivating principles. Now operating at the same time, but independent of the Lutheran movement, was the Zwinglian or the Calvinistic Reformation. Ulrich Zwingli was a Swiss reformer. Wrote a very important essay of the education of youth preached in Zurich Cathedral, and he preached this message in 1523. It was pretty much an essay that he gave, but what he did was he revealed within that essay his concern for young people. It emphasized how the tender mind of youth is to be instructed in the things of God. Zwingli said there are directions which should be given from the cradle or from the earliest years. So here we have another reformer, and he's emphasizing the duty of working and praying for the conversion of the young. William Farrell, the predecessor of John Calvin, began his work in Aigle, the village southeast of the Lake of Geneva. He opened a school. He taught children the Word of God. He didn't go in as a preacher. He went in as a schoolmaster. 
That was his point of entry. The children then came along to the school, began to go home, tell their parents of what they were hearing there. And the result was those townspeople, one after another, came to William Farrell and said, what you're teaching my children, we'd love to hear that as well. Will you teach us too? And I believe that illustrates an important truth. If we are faithful in teaching the children, it may be that'll open the door, establish a point of contact for contacting the parents, reaching whole families for the Lord Jesus Christ. Isaiah 11 and 6, a little child shall lead them. And the historian J.A. Wiley tells us what happened next. Through the minds of the children, William Farrell gained access to those of the parents. And when he had gathered a little flock around him, he threw off his disguise and announced himself, not as the school teacher, but as William Farrell, the minister. While he continues, though he had dropped from the clouds, the priest could not have been more frightened, nor the people more surprised by the sudden metamorphosis of this schoolmaster. Farrell instantly mounted the pulpit. His bold look, his burning eye, his voice of thunder, his words rapid, eloquent, and stamped with the majesty of truth reached the conscience and increased the number of those in the valley of Igum who were already prepared to take the word of God for their guide. But moving on to the man who replaced him, John Calvin, came to Geneva in 1536, the month of July, and almost immediately when he had got into the city, he prepared a catechism for the instruction of the young. Later in 1545, he prepared another, the catechism of the Church of Geneva. John Knox said, that is the best catechism ever produced. Calvin in the title described it as a plan of instructing children in the doctrine of Christ. It took the form of a dialogue, this catechism, a dialogue between a minister and a child. It was divided into 55 Sunday parts. Calvin believed that ministers had this responsibility for ensuring each Lord's Day your children are well taught. And in the introduction to the catechism, he writes, it has always been a practice and diligent care of the church that children be rightly brought up in Christian doctrine. It later became law in the city of Geneva, in each of its three parish churches, that in addition to holding their worship services on the Sunday, they should hold children's classes at midday. All citizens and inhabitants, this law read, are to bring or to convey their children on Sundays at midday to catechism. A definite formulary is to be composed by which they will be instructed, and on this, with the teaching given them, they are to be, wonderful word, interrogated about what has been said to see if they have listened and remembered well. In order that there be no mistake, let it be ordained that the children who come to school assemble there before 12 o'clock, and that the masters conduct them in good order in each parish. And now we move from Switzerland over to Scotland. 
to John Knox, famous leader of the Calvinistic Reformation in that land. He had a prominent part in the drafting of the book of discipline for the guidance of those churches in Scotland released in 1560. And it included this phrase, that the children be instructed in the chief points of religion. And he was following the, mad, the model that had been brought in by Calvin in Geneva. And so after this Genevan model, Knox wrote, Before noon must the word be preached, and after noon must the young children be publicly examined in their catechism. And so we have another example of a 16th century Sunday school in Switzerland, in Scotland, and right across Europe. But we drop down now to England and to the Anglican Reformation. We think of Thomas Cranmer. In 1553, he published a catechism entitled A Short Instruction into the Children Religion for the Singular Commodity and Profit of Children and Young People. It was defective in a number of areas, but it was nevertheless issued that the unskillful in young age may have the foundations laid of religion. It was endorsed by the king, Edward VI. Cranmer said, God's holy word, reaching into tender hearts, oh, I pray, he said, the youth of your grace's realm may learn to know God and that king was very satisfied with Cranmer's work. You see, at that time, many of the English clergy didn't know the truth of God at all. Many of them were hostile to the Reformation. And aware of that, John Hooper, a bishop in England at the time in 1551 through 1552, he drafted 50 articles. These ministers are for you, he said. You have to subscribe them, like our ministers do now, subscription to the Westminster Confession of Faith. We have 50 articles back then by Bishop John Hooper. Article 31 stated that the catechism be read and taught unto the children every Sunday at one or two o'clock after dinner, and that they may be therefore duly examined one after another by order. Archbishop Grindle wrote out similar injunctions for the clergy in 1571. He was sympathetic to the Puritan movement, and he ordered that all ministers every Sunday in church or chapel instruct the children. And he said to the intent, this thing may be more effectually executed. Ye shall take the names of all the children in your parish that be above six years of age and under twenty. Now, that was back in 1571. But local churches were being encouraged to reach out to all the children around you, enlist them on a roll. Sounds like a Sunday school most definitely does. The 59th canon of the 101st Constitutions and Canons Ecclesiastical of 1603 was very explicit. It bound every parson Every vicar, every curate, upon every Sunday for half an hour or more to instruct the youth. And it added, if any minister neglect his duty herein, let him be sharply reproved. After the reformers 
came that noble band of men called the Puritans. Did they care about the children? Yes, they had the same compassion that Peter was imbibed with, feed my lambs. The earliest known Sunday school, in fact. And people say it was Robert Rakes. Well, actually, it wasn't, though he had a significant part to play. But the earliest known Sunday school in England was started in Bath by one of the Puritans, Reverend Joseph Allian. He'd been in prison for flouting the Act of Uniformity in 1662, but he gathered a group of between 60 and 70 children for instruction on Sundays. His wife, Theodosia, says... They profited much by his instructions. So those Puritans, they definitely believed in evangelizing children. And some of the people who say, well, we're the true successor of the Puritans today, they're not as keen in getting the word into the minds of the children as they should be. Matthew Henry, great Bible commentator, one of the Puritans in 1713, he said, Oh, that we who were ministers were filled with a zeal for the spiritual welfare and eternal salvation of young people and a concern for the rising generation. How applicable are those words today, to me, to you, to every minister, that we should be filled with a zeal for the spiritual welfare and eternal salvation of young people and a concern for the rising generation. And we're to do our utmost as our ability and opportunity is to fill the minds of young ones in their early days with the knowledge of Christ and to fix them for Christ that the next generation may be better than this. He goes on to say they are foolish, they are poor, they know not the way of the Lord nor the judgment of their God. If you can do anything, sirs, have compassion upon them and help them pick up some of those abandoned young ones, you who have ability, and rescue them from ruin by putting them into the way of receiving instruction. Others following down the line, including the likes of John Bunyan, wrote a book for boys and girls, a lengthy poem, actually, that was inculcating in every line gospel truth. One of the lines in the poem has Bunyan saying, I would be catching boys and girls. And we're not talking about playing tig here. We're talking about reaching to their souls. Another Baptist, Benjamin Keach, who was sentenced in 1664 to a fine imprisonment and pillory for writing his book for the spiritual instruction of children. All copies of his book were destroyed, but he rewrote it from memory. And in later years, that book ran into further editions. It reveals the interest that those Baptist preachers were taking in winning the young. Then we have the turn of Isaac Watts. He wrote his famous divine and moral songs for children. Did you ever hear about John Brown, a priest? Still, maybe you've stood at the place where he died, sentenced to death, brutally shot by Claverhouse and his dragoons. John Brown was a covenanter in Scotland, murdered in front of the eyes of his wife and his children in 1685. But that dear man, 
regularly gathered children around him on Sunday evenings to teach them the way of God's salvation. Another Scot, David Lambert, is said to have taught a Sunday school in Berkshire, highly spoken of for its blessed effects, and that was way back in 1710. So as we look over the 17th century, going into the 18th century as well, one thing is clear. Determined efforts were being made right through the period to evangelize the children. Then when we come to the 18th century, we have the Methodist movement. Don't worry, we will get to the 19th century, and we'll get home to Ireland on that one. John Wesley was a minister in Savannah in America for a while, 1735, and he had a custom there to meet children before the Sunday evening meeting to teach them to recite the catechism. That idea was taken up by other Methodists, the most important being Hannah Ball from High Wycombe in 1769. In 1751, there was St. Mary's Parish Church in Nottingham, and there was Sunday school education being pioneered there for those that were in poverty, had endured long working hours. Hannah Ball comes along. Beyond Hannah Ball, we have in Gloucester another young Methodist woman, Sophia Cook, started a Sunday school in 1777. Along with her sister, she gathered together a group of children. Those children were working at her uncle's pin factory, and after teaching them, took them to a service conducted by Reverend Thomas Stock, who was the headmaster of the cathedral school. And later was this Sophia Cook who walked through Gloucester in a march along with Robert Rakes when he led his first poor band of children to Sunday school. And apparently it was her, Sophia, that gave Robert Rakes that idea. Robert Rakes was an Anglican layman, wealthy newspaper man from Gloucester. He's often seen as the founder of Sunday schools. Although, as we've been noting, Sunday schools existed before his time. But there's no doubt, as a result of his effort, as a result of the publicity that he gave to it, as a result of the money that he poured into the whole project through him, the Sunday school movement spread rapidly across the country. And it was ultimately recognized as being the beginning of universal education. He went into one of Gloucester's lower-class suburbs one day, and he said, listen to his words, I was struck with concern. I was struck with concern. And if you and I can go around Belfast today, and if we're claiming to be evangelical Christians, and if we are not struck with concern, concern by what we see. There's something badly wrong. Now challenge yourself and your heart today. Am I struck with concern by what I see? Rake said, I was struck with concern at seeing a group of children wretchedly ragged at play in the streets. I asked an inhabitant whether those children belonged to that part of the town and lamented their misery and idleness. Ah, sir, said the woman to whom I was speaking, could you take a view of this part of the town on a Sunday? You would be shocked indeed, for then 
The street is filled with multitudes of these wretches who release from that day from employment, spend their time in noise and riot, playing at chuck and cursing and swearing in a manner so horrid as to convey to any serious mind an idea of hell rather than any other place. And so Rakes began to formulate a plan to reach those children. For a Sunday school brought in Mr. Stock, a man with great sympathy for the poor as well. They chose four female teachers who were decent, well-disposed women who kept schools for teaching to read. A list was drawn up of 90 children aged between 5 and 14, the worst cases they could find, and they persuaded parents to send them along to Sunday school. Nobody was put out because of their ragged clothes. Nobody was even put out because of poor behavior. They had to attend with clean hands and faces. They had to have their hair combed, and he gave a comb to all of the children so that I would be insured. There were initially four classes held in different places, one in St. Catherine Street, one in Sooty Alley. That was near the city jail where the chimney sweeps lived. Each class divided into four groups with a monitor. Usually the best boy or the best girl would have been the monitor helping the other pupils. In addition to reading, they learned the catechism, memorized Bible passages, learned hymns. Years later, Rick said, I can never pass by the spot where the word try came so powerfully into my mind without lifting up my heart and hands to heaven in gratitude to God for having put such a thought into my head. We think of our Savior. In Matthew 9, 36, He was moved with compassion because they were as sheep, having no shepherd. We think of Robert Rake's word. The challenge. Look at the scale of what's happening here. Look at the debauchery and sin. And this thought came into his head. Try. And should that not be what motivates us today? The compassion of Christ. The challenge. At least try. At least try. And we're now in Belfast. Ireland of the 19th century with the Reverend Dr. Thomas Drew. Born in Limerick, went to Trinity College Dublin, then came for his first charge to Belfast in 1832. Became minister in Christ Church, College Square, Belfast, and stayed there right to the revival year of 1859. During his time in the city, he'd inject new energy into the Church of Ireland, and he made Christ Church the largest congregation. Not only that, he oversaw 20 further churches opening. And each of those 20 were intended as memorials to the Protestant martyrs. He built the Huss School. He built the Luther School. He had Sunday school excursions for children. At its height, in his church, there was an estimated 1,000 people coming to Sunday services, he didn't really brew the same kind of stuff as the high-handed, high-minded 
officials within the church because he was right down at the level of the people. He believed deeply in providing a religious education for children. Much of his ministry was devoted to ensuring young people were one for Christ. And so that congregation in Christ Church became really representative of all the social classes in the city. Almost 800 people attended Children's Day in 1844. They had a parade. They marched through Belfast that day, and they carried it from Christchurch right through to Botanic Gardens, and they had a banner that day, Feed My Lambs. John 21, the verse 15, the words of Christ to Peter. Drew believed the church has this responsibility to look after the spiritual, practical needs of the city's children, and he did it. If you want to find out where his church is, no longer sadly a church, it's actually the library that Inst use, and you may well recognize that building. Formerly Christ Church, 1,000 people. 800 Sunday school attendees. Can God do this again? Of course He can. I was struck with concern. I tried. By 1818, half a million were in Sunday schools in the UK. By 1851, it had gone up to two and a half million children in Sunday school. 1898, seven and a half million. Wonderful figure, the high watermark of Sunday schools in the United Kingdom. By 1965, it had dropped to less than two and a half million. Five million plus swept off that previous total. By 1980, further halved and more down to a million and two thousand children across the UK in Sunday schools. And you can guarantee it's much less today. Much less today. Clive Field, writing on this topic, has argued that Sunday school has collapsed. He says the persistence of religion depends upon the successful transmission of faith from one generation to the next. Any failure in this process of religious socialization, particularly during the formative years of childhood and adolescence, potentially hastens secularization. The drop in Sunday school attendance, it's like being on a seesaw. It causes to rise at the other end secular thought. That's what we see, is it not? He notes as well that following the collapse of Sunday schools, churches appear to have internalized their ministry to children and young people. In other words, just whosoever's in the church, whatever families might attend the church, let's use our energy there and let's not spread beyond the boundaries of the church, but field, he said, even to retain those offmost members and attenders. Is that not a solemn point? We need to reverse this trend. 
we need to explore the reasons that we have for Sunday schools. That's my third point. I don't have time for it today. We'll do it tomorrow night in the prayer meeting and bring that set of reasons for having Sunday schools to our attention. But let's remember the word of Christ to Peter, feed my lambs. The concern that filled the heart of Robert Rakes and the passion, just try. Try. Is it worth a try? As we look over Belfast today, as we go through the streets, and those that do knock the doors, and those that do visit, and those who are not afraid to get their hands dirty in the work, they know what the issues are. But the challenge, feed my lambs. Try. Are we willing to try? Try.